time for the Blind Broadcaster Podcast presented by the Luther King Broadcast Network. Each episode, Luther King sits down with fellow broadcasters to get their insight into their passion for broadcasting and discuss their career journey. Blind from birth, Luther King has never let that stop him from attaining his goal on becoming a blind broadcaster. And now, here's the blind broadcaster himself, Luther King. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to the March 1st edition of the Luther King Network. Broadcast Network's Blind Broadcaster Podcast. If you want to reply to me directly, you can by emailing me at luther.king.tsb at gmail.com, Twitter at king underscore tsb, and on IG at lking.cardinalsfanity5. And you can look up more information about the network by going on the website, lutherkingbroadcastnetwork.com, and the Facebook pages, the Blind Broadcaster Podcast Facebook page, and the Luther King Broadcast Network Facebook page. My guest for this week is the voice of Western Kentucky University Athletics, Randy Lee. Randy, welcome aboard. Great to be here, Luther. Thank you. No problem. When did broadcasting and play-by-play get onto your radar? I always grew up listening to games on the radio as a kid, as maybe young as I can remember, but I never thought about being an announcer at that time. I think I first maybe thought about it prior to my senior year of high school when I was trying to determine what I was going to do once my, you know, graduated and this or that. And so I uh, was either going to go to college to be a coach and a teacher or a broadcaster. So I decided that I would at least attempt to go to a school that had a broadcasting curriculum with a campus radio station and see how it all worked out. So uh, that was uh, the the main reason I decided I, I really uh, had wanted to go to Illinois State University uh, out of high school because they had a really good broadcasting curriculum, and I'd read a lot about it. And there were some announcers that who had graduated from there that had gone on to get jobs. Um, that didn't quite work out, so I ended up going to Marshall University, sort of at uh, last minute actually, and uh, and you know, I was there for four years, and I, I could not have had a better experience at that campus radio station than I did. What did you feel like you learned at that campus station that you still carry into what you do now? No, everything. Um, I mean, that was, that was so valuable. Uh, you know, my first year when I arrived, I was shy and I struggled a little bit. There were a lot of older like seniors at the campus station. So I didn't really get a chance to do much, but I at least listened. And um, my sophomore year is really when I got heavily involved in it. And then my junior year, uh, a gentleman decided to come back to school. He had graduated, but he'd gone into the coal mines and didn't want that life. So he decided he was going to come back to Marshall, go to graduate school. And one of his jobs when he arrived there was to be the manager of the campus radio station. Um, he was sort of, he was a big influence on me, gave me some confidence. Uh, I think he helped me with my vocabulary and more so just confidence. And I got, you know, I had, I had the opportunity to do a lot of games and listened and tried to correct the mistakes and tried to uh, eliminate as much of my accent uh, as I could growing up in that part of the country or as much as I knew how to at that time. And that gentleman is still there at Marshall and has helped hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students over the last 30 some years who wanted to get into broadcasting. Uh, he's still there. And uh, if he did not arrive at uh, you know at that campus radio station, you know, things may not have worked out the way they did. Uh, one thing I did learn though, uh, I learned that you just couldn't go to college, at least in this profession, and get a degree. And then all of a sudden start sending out your resume to radio stations with your uh, with a resume. I mean, you know, they were going to hire you on how you sounded. Uh, so I got internships after my sophomore year. I spent a living in Charleston, South Carolina, working for a minor league baseball team. I went back after my junior year. Uh, I never went home. I, I went and worked full time in the summers and uh, learned that you, know, you needed to get experience. Uh, that piece of paper, you know, is certainly an achievement. Uh, it teaches you discipline. And I'm sure there's classes that I took that 
have helped me in some way, shape or form, but you know, probably 90% of my experience in education, I came at that campus radio station. So at that point, when you're at the campus radio station, were you around coaches and things like that, that also helped you for when you figured out that you were ready to step out into the world of broadcasting as a play-by-play voice? No, there, there were no coaches ever influences. Now, you know, I was, you know, I was able to broadcast the men's football games, basketball games, baseball games, uh, not every one of them, but a lot of them uh, did women's basketball as well. But I, I wouldn't say any of the coaches that were Marshall at Marshall were an influence to me whatsoever. Uh, they didn't really help me in any way, shape or form uh, in my uh, profession or, or what I hoped was going to be my profession. I mean, they were kind to me and I got interviews and things like that. But uh, I, I, one of the baseball coach, he was, I, I took a class from him, but, but I wouldn't say they were influences at all. Uh, the gentleman who was broadcasting the Marshall games at the time, you know, the, the, the professional announcer hired by the school, not I me. Mean, I was broadcasting games on the campus station as well as yes. some other students. I'd say he was an influence. Uh, Frank Gardenia is his name. And Frank, at that time, he had probably been broadcasting the games for maybe a dozen years. And he was an alum of Marshall. And uh, I mean, I wasn't that close to him personally, but I did listen to him, watch him. And uh, I would say, I mean, he told me numerous times not to get into the profession. So I wouldn't say he was an influence at all. Um, I, I think maybe... Uh, I felt like he was telling me that because he didn't think I could do it. So that just spurred me on a little bit more to prove to him that I could make a career. So in that regard, maybe he was a bit of an influence. So you did a little minor league baseball. When did college come back on your radar to try to get back to the college level to be a play-by-play voice at the college level? Yeah, uh, you know, baseball was my full-time uh, gig there, and but I always was able to virtually about every year do some play-by-play or a lot of play-by-play for football and basketball, um, high school. And then when I was in Florida, the gentleman I grew up listening to passionately as a kid at a NAIA school, Fairmont State College in West Virginia, he had uh, a bout with cancer, and I was just at the, at the radio station I was working at in Florida. There was a, a magazine called Broadcasting Magazine. It's no longer around. Maybe it's online, but in the back of that magazine, it was a monthly, they would list jobs that were available, and you could also advertise your services if you wanted to get a job somewhere, and it was broken down into broadcasting, news, sports, sales, that kind of deal. So I just breezing through that magazine one day, and I saw an opening for a radio station in West Virginia to broadcast college sports. Well, I didn't. It didn't list the town. It did list a number, uh, but in West Virginia, there's one the only one area code. So that didn't narrow down much. So I called that station, and sure enough, when they answered, it was the station I had grown up listening to as a kid, and my mother had worked at as a secretary. Well, I don't know for maybe four or five years after she graduated high school. And Frank Lee was at that station. So I'm thinking, okay, why are they advertising for a sportscaster? They did broadcast high school sports. So I thought maybe that was it. They told me that Frank was ill and they were looking for someone to come in and replace him for a year. So, you know, that that was what the job was for. Uh, And I was thinking at that time of getting out of professional baseball, going into college. So I applied for the job, um, got it. Of course, talked to my boss in Florida who agreed to let me not work in my other job at the station. Uh, when baseball season was over, I went back to West Virginia and did all their basketball and football games. That pretty well convinced me that that's what I wanted to do more so than professional baseball, because I just did not have a lot of confidence that I could make it to the major leagues. I didn't think I was good enough at that time. So I just elected at that point in time to start looking and 
trying to plan a departure and get into collegiate athletics on the play-by-play end. So that really started it. And then it may have been the next year in that same magazine, at that same radio station I was working at in Florida, in the back of the magazine, there was another ad for a station in San Angelo, Texas, that was looking for a college sportscaster. I had never even heard of Solo, Texas, so I had no idea what <laughs> school was there. Well, it was a school called Angelo State University, a Division II school in the Lone Star Conference. Mm-hmm. So I sent them a tape, and at the very first part of that tape, <coughs> I was fortunate most years to be broadcasting the New York Mets Major League Spring Training Games. So I put on a couple of Daryl Strawberry home runs, and, and I had Mookie Wilson climb the fence to rob uh, a home run. I forget who hit it, but Mookie climbed the fence. So that opened up some years in West Texas that here's a dude who, you know, was broadcasting only at the uh, spring training level, but still broadcasting major league spring training uh, games. And they felt like that was pretty cool. So they were also looking for someone to sell. Uh, they wanted to know if I could do it. I hadn't sold anything in my entire life. I said I would do everything I could to learn. So um, I got hired there, sight unseen, didn't even go in for an interview, uh, packed my truck and drove to West Texas for the first time in my life and spent six years there. And I really think that was the six years that enabled me to uh, get a lot better in football and basketball. I felt like maybe after my first or second year, I really liked, first time I really liked maybe how I sounded, it felt like maybe I've got a shot to be a Division One sportscaster. So those six years there in San Angelo, Texas were invaluable and the people were great. And I love the school and it was, a, it was a great experience. I've always wondered this because now a lot of the teams will have spring training webcasts that are like radio cast, just not on network radio network. How did they determine <clears throat> when you were doing the spring games how many games they would use you for. And were they all across the network or was it just select, you know, stations that would get your game feed and who were you working with? Yeah. um, I was prior to accepting that job, I'm an Oriole junkie. So when I got hired to do the Orioles double A teams in the Southern, it was like heaven on earth for me. I was in the Orioles organization. I love Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, but they had had an ownership change mm-hmm. and uh, things weren't looking too promising for the old regime. We worked for a family that was basically the enemy of the new people taking over. So I didn't really know how secure my job was. They came in and said, okay, we're going to test all of you out for one year. And if you do well, then we'll keep you on. If we don't, you know, we'll look elsewhere. So um, the assistant general manager of that team left. And went to Florida. He didn't want to wait around. And plus, he was a New York Mets fan. And the New York Mets had just moved their spring training site from St. Petersburg, Florida, to a little town called Fort St. Lucie, Florida, on the East Coast, just south of Vero, just north of West Palm Beach. I believe back in those days, it's grown significantly now. But I think the population was about 30,000, real tiny. (laughs) And they had hired the Mets. New York Mets had hired him to go there and run single a baseball team at florida state league and also do a lot of things at spring training mm-hmm. and he wanted me to go with him and i said i didn't want to go uh that's before uh the team was purchased by the, that you know, the new regime well about two months after this gentleman had gone to florida the new regime came in and come in and said okay you got a year you know we'll try you out and so i reached back out to this gentleman and he put me in touch with the radio station down there and um, they agreed uh, to interview me. Uh, I, w- I was going to meet them at the winter baseball meetings in Nashville, Tennessee. No, no, it was in Dallas, Texas that year. So I flew to Dallas, met the owner of the radio station who was going to broadcast the games. I was going to be a full-time employee at the radio station. So liked him a lot, decided to take that opportunity because um, they kept saying who the major league training games. I didn't really know if I could believe or not. It sounded too big too good to be true. So the way they worked it out was in those days, the Mets were on WFAN radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also, in, in that time of the year, in spring training in March, uh, and uh, they were carrying Seton Hall basketball 
and some other things. So they didn't broadcast every single game on WFAN. At that time, their two announcers on the radio were the legendary Bob Murphy, one of my all-time favorite broadcasters and people of all time, and Gary, and, um, Gary Thorne. And they would never do uh, they they would never do the weekday games. I think they only mostly did weekday <clears throat> games on WFAN. Did not that didn't conflict with Seton Hall. So out of I don't know maybe thirty I think played thirty spring training games. I probably did twenty. Um, and then my first year there, I even did the games that WFAN did. I would just broadcast those on the low station. So uh, I'd say uh, every spring training, if they played thirty games, I would at least do twenty. And um, if the games were at home, WFAN was carrying. I would still them for the station I was employed by uh, there. Um, and, and but those games are only carried on the Florida network stations that the Mets had. They had a few. Uh, I was never on WFAN in New York City. So back to San Angelo State. You were working there for six years. How did Nebraska come onto your radar or give me the synopsis of where your travels took you after San Angelo State? Yeah, uh, when I was at ASU, uh, I was starting to then feel like I would have a shot at working at a Division I school. Uh, we played a team, a home game. Um, we played a Division II team called Cal Poly. They were from San, San Luis Obispo, California. Mm-hmm. And as a kid, I'd always dreamt of going to California just to visit and in a perfect world, maybe living there. When you grew up in West Virginia, it's cold in the winters and you watch the Rose Bowl. Uh, you know, California looks pretty cool. And um, so they came to play us in San Angelo. And I looked through their media guide. And that campus and that city looked so beautiful. I, I just couldn't get over it. So uh, like maybe the next year we played at the University of Southern Utah. Uh, we flew into Vegas, went south, and to whatever, Cedar City or Cedar Park or Cedar City, Utah. Uh, that's where you know, we played the game. And when we came back, I just uh, I was not flying back with a team on that trip. I was going since I was so close to California and had never been there. I was flying. I was going to go to California and explore. So I flew into L.A. and drove south to Long Beach, looked at Long Beach, Fullerton, Irvine, uh, then went northbound and went through Santa Barbara and then to San Luis Obispo. And I found the radio station. Now, you know, the world was bigger then. There's no Internet, okay, no cell phones. Uh, so, you know, you, you couldn't really do a lot of uh, uh, investigative work on the internet because the internet didn't exist. Exactly. So I dr- drove to San Francisco, California, up the coast. God, what a beautiful drive. And <laughs> saw where that radio station was at that was broadcasting the games. It was in a house trailer. Okay, I didn't know much what? about... Wait like, a minute. You mean to yeah, tell me I, there was I didn't a house know much about life then. Yeah, I didn't know much uh, about life then, but I knew the prospects of moving to California, if that job ever opened, and working out of a house trailer probably wasn't good. So... Uh, but, you know, I checked out San Luis Obispo. I loved it. Went to Santa Barbara. I loved it. Loved Long Beach. And um, I just kept, you know, my ear low to the ground. And, and lo and behold, there was another publication that emerged, uh, much like the previous magazines I'd seen jobs in, uh, broadcasting. This was like a newspaper format, and I don't remember the name of it. But in there, it talked about the radio station that I had gone to visit or look at from the outside i was going to go visit them and go indoor go inside and introduce myself when i saw it was in a house trailer i didn't do it uh, but i saw that a network out of bakersfield california was purchasing a group of stations in san Luis obispo and so i reached out to them and said okay here's my name randy blah 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 i love california i'm looking to move to california someday and work for a school and if your company ever is involved in um, acquiring the rights to University of Poly, I would love to be your announcer. And they said, "Well, you have it. You made a timely call, sir, because we have just purchased radio station, and we are going to win the bid to broadcast their games. We know it. 
So send us your stuff. So I sent him my stuff and, you know, went on for a couple months. And, you know, never, things never finally called me the last minute and said, hey, we just got the rights, but it's not secure enough. We feel like we can bring someone out, make a move. We're just going to get a local guy just to get our feet on the ground, blah, 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 blah. I said, okay. So then I, so I said, well, you know, I like Santa Barbara. That was a beautiful place. They don't have football. They got basketball and baseball. So when I heard back from San Luis Obispo, I sent Santa Barbara a tape. And sure enough, the timing was awesome. They called me a week or two after I sent the tape and said, listen, we're looking to replace the person who's been broadcasting our games because he does not want to be a full-time employee with the school at the radio station. And he doesn't want to sell. He would work in the, and he came from a really rich family uh, that invented a lot of the board games that you and I grew up playing. And, all he wanted to do was broadcast the games, party during the season, and then go home and live at his parents' house because they, they're multimillionaires and not work in the offseason. And he turned them down. So he, we want to bring someone in who will broadcast the games and sell. Well, you, I was selling like crazy, you know, in Texas. So I got me an interview. So I went out and uh, lucked out and got the job, moved out maybe a month later, I don't know, and started. And then I'll never forget this. I got a phone call from my former general manager in Texas saying this gentleman from San Luis Obispo, California is trying to find you. And once he gets before cell phones. So he goes, I'll decide I'd call you and let you know. So, well, it was the guy who months ago had told me we're not ready to bring someone out and hire someone full time. Sure enough, they changed their mind and now they wanted to hire me. And here I had just started. I mean, I hadn't been in Santa Barbara a month and they had just started. I would have, I mean, my preference was to do Cal Poly because he had football and basketball and baseball. Santa Barbara didn't have football. Uh, so my preference was to go there, but I'd already committed to Santa Barbara. I'd already been there for like a month, and I just didn't feel like I could just up and leave and go up the coast and work at Cal Poly. So I said, you know, the time just wasn't right. I, you know, I just can't. I have to stay here because they were they hired me. So. That was that, and I was there five years, became very uh, tight with the athletic director, the former UCLA head basketball coach, Gary Cunningham, who's also John Wooden's assistant for many years. And Man, I love Santa Barbara. They had a football team. I never would have left. It was expensive. It was difficult to live there for, for that reason, but most beautiful city ever. But, uh, you know, if I'd have been a – they'd have had football or if I'd have been a lifeguard, I never would have left California. Uh, but um, – we had played about five years into my stint there. Uh, we played at the University of Nebraska. Our women's team did a tournament. And I did the women's basketball games too. So I went there, and when I arrived in uh, Lincoln, I decided I was going to drive to wherever the network office was for the University of Nebraska and take my tape and resume and my package and drop it off at their office. So I rented a car. I drove to a little town called Gretna which is halfway between Lincoln and Omaha out in the middle of freaking nowhere. I couldn't Basically believe it. Cal- the- yeah. Oh, I Basically could not believe Cal- that's Cal- where the- Cal- Cal- exactly. I could not believe that's where the university of Nebraska's radio network office was at. Well, there was a reason for it. I didn't know at the time. So I drove up to Gretna walked through. They didn't know me from anyone and wanted to meet the general manager by the name of Johnny Andrews. Well, Johnny wasn't in at that time. So I left my package. That would have been like in probably December. Well, we, we were good that year, our men and women, and uh, we both went to the tournament. And it was shortly after our men had lost uh, in the tournament down at the pit in Albuquerque. I get a phone call from Johnny Andrews at the radio station I was working at in Santa Barbara. said, listen, we're looking to hire a basketball announcer. Are you interested? I remember saying, are you talking about men's games or women's games? He goes, no, the men's games. I said, yes, I would love to broadcast Nebraska basketball. So they set up a, a time for me to go back and um, interview. It was during the College World Series. Forget it. I could not believe how big the World Series was in Omaha. I'd never attended those events before. They put me in a hotel in downtown Omaha during the World Series. I, I would just, and I always, I always knew about the, fanaticism of Nebraska sports fans that just sealed the deal there. So, you know, I didn't know how well my interview went, you know, let's go on a month or two, not heard anything. 
Well, the owner of the network, I then found out, actually owned a home in San Luis Obispo, California. So about two months after I interviewed, I'd given up on the job. Again, got back to me. I called a few times. Yeah, we'll get back to you. You've heard that a million times. He calls me about two months after I interviewed in Omaha and wanted me to drive up to San Luis Obispo and visit him at his home. And he wanted to know if I liked lighthouses. Well, at the time, I was really in the lighthouses. I collected lighthouses. I said, yeah, I collect lighthouses. He goes, well, I do too. We're going to go toward lighthouses on the coast of California. All right. So we drive around these lighthouses, talk about this and that, and he decides he's going to hire me. So um, that's how I got the Nebraska job. So basically looking at lighthouses at the owner's behest just to have you come up to his house and you guys tour lighthouses, yeah. you got the Nebraska gig. Yeah, he wanted to meet me. He did not enter. He, he was not involved in the interview when I was in Lincoln. Oh, okay. It was his. Uh, yeah, he wasn't really that involved. I mean, he he interviewed me, but not. I mean, he was he wanted to know me personally, sure. and he only really interviewed me about the specifics of the job, and didn't spend. I'm like, I went with Johnny, the GM, around to eat and toured the place, and I didn't do that with the owner. Um, I, I found out. Why? Because the owner really wasn't for sure if they were going to hire a new person or not. So he didn't get that deeply involved when he decided he wanted to make the change. And this owner was really into, but he wanted the person to be a good fit. He had all these personality tests I had to take just to see if I could, would fit in coming from California. You know, of course he didn't know, uh, you know, I probably didn't realize I'd moved all over the country. I wasn't from California. Um, so, uh, but you know, and he took a chance on me because he took some heat, uh, because most people in Nebraska are, I shouldn't say most, but they want some of their own to do the games. Okay. So when he told them, he told them some dude from the, from the ocean side of California was going to come in and broadcast their sports, that probably didn't go over too well. And, uh, probably the main reason I I got the job because I could sell really well or had success selling. And he was into making money where a lot of announcers didn't sell, didn't want to sell or hadn't sold. So he had to convince the athletic director that, first of all, I'm not some surfer dude that's going to come in with frosted hair and uh, painted fingernails. And, you know, I'm, I'm not I mean, I work there, but I'm not from there. So, um, yeah. So once he got to know me and, and we visited, I think we, we I was very intimidated by it, but I think we we hit it off and. Uh, and he gave me an opportunity, which uh, was, uh, you know, uh, probably an opportunity I never felt like I would ever uh, obtained at that level. Um, so I went there and did basketball. And the very next year, they had a three-man football broadcasting team. The third man couldn't do the games anymore. So they wanted me to do football. So I did football. And the next year, um, the athletic director, that the new, there was a new athletic director after, you know, I've been hired. Then two years later, there's a new AD came in, and he was very difficult to work with. He kept firing all the talk show hosts on the network, so I would fill in when they'd fire a talk show host. And then he fired a guy who was the baseball announcer because he didn't like what he said about the athletic director on a talk show. So I remember we're at the office, and I'm, you know, I heard Paul really getting the phone call from Steve the Peterson, the AD, saying, "Hey, you've got to fire Gary. He's not going to be broadcasting at Nebraska Sports as of tomorrow. He's gone." So Paul in the office, I remember him talking to some of the salespeople saying, what am I going to do? He goes, I got to find a guy who's done baseball and he's got to start tomorrow. Well, he had forgotten that, hell, I'd done minor league baseball for 10 years. So I just walked over to him and said, Paul, I know someone who's done 10 years of minor league baseball and about four years of college baseball. He goes, who's that? I said, well, me. He had forgotten, you know, that I'd even done baseball. He goes, we start tomorrow. So so they're for like the last three years or four years in Nebraska. You know, I was, you know, the play-by-play guy for basketball, baseball, and then uh, uh, the third person in the booth for football, and then you know, hosted talk shows and things like that. So, how did Western Kentucky, your current location, come on your radar? Yep, um, the the new athletic director was not a very nice person to be around, or 
Now, I didn't work for him, but he controlled much of what happened with the radio network. Um, a very domineering presence. And when he arrived, I just called him and said, hey, you know, welcome. And he was from Nebraska, was the very first director of operations for any athletic department ever. Tom Osborne actually invented that position. There was never a director of operations for any sport in any school until Coach Osborne came up with that um, that position. And this gentleman was the very first one to fill the role. So he was the athletic director at Pitt. Um, the AD I went to work for, Bill Byrne, or work with, Bill Byrne left Nebraska to Texas A&M, and they brought Steve Peterson back in. And so I called Steve and said, Steve, you know, I'm Randy Lee, blah, blah, blah. I've been broadcasting the basketball games here for probably about a year and a half at that time. And I'd like to come down and get to, you know, go to lunch. Well, he didn't take my call. And his secretary got back to me and said, uh, Steve says he's too busy, but maybe next year, not next week, not next month. Reach back out next year. So that made me feel too comfortable. Um, and then, but you know, year two went by, no relationship with him whatsoever. Um, he then fired our general manager out of nowhere, uh, who we loved to death. And then I could sense something was just not the same. Well, come to find out when he took the job, he had promised the longtime Nebraska play-by-play announcer that he would return. As soon as I get the job, you are returning. Uh, to be the announcer again. He had run afoul with the Nebraska network and they had let him go. Well, my boss at the time uh, fought that and prevented that from happening for as long as he was involved in Nebraska athletics. Well, the boss I'd gone to work for was bought out by Host Communications at the time. Host came in and pretty well bowed down in front of the new AD and let him get anything he wanted so the decision was going to be made at some point in time that this former announcer was coming back to do basketball, uh, but I could stay and do the baseball games and, and be the third person in the booth for football and continue to sell. And I just decided I had no relationship with this athletic director. He never talked to me ever, nor did he talk to any of the announcers. Quite frankly, the announcers I worked with, the color people from Nebraska, I really didn't like that well. And I was tired of being cold in the winter. So I just let host communications know that if any position ever opened in the company, that I would be interested in applying. And um, they didn't think I would ever leave Nebraska because when you're Nebraska, that's deemed as being the greatest job ever. Um, the Nebraska people didn't think I was serious. Well, uh, the new general manager came in and I let him know that, listen, I'm going to bust my tail. But if there's another opportunity at host communications, uh, you people where it's at, I would love an opportunity. So I don't know, a month or two goes by, they go to a big meeting, all the Learfield people, or all the host communications people. And sure enough, uh, they had just acquired, they announced they had just acquired the rights to Western Kentucky University. And the current announcer at WKU had just announced that he was leaving um, after being there six or seven years to move to Memphis, Tennessee. So, um, Want to know if I would be interested? And I said, sure, because they wanted someone who could sell. They were moving up from the FCF, FCS level of football to FBS, and they wanted to try to bring in an announcer who had been involved in Division One athletics, even though I wasn't a play-by-play announcer in Nebraska. In football, I was a color guy and did numerous things on the network during the games and sold. And uh, so I set up um, – they called one if I'd come in for an interview, and I did – uh, I, I had another interview at Ohio U the week before, and when I was at Ohio U uh, talking to them, I remember the host people called and said, have they offered you a job at Ohio U? And I said, no. Actually, I went to Ohio U. I had not got an interview yet at uh, WKU, so I took the interview at Ohio U, and they called me while I was there, and they said, listen, you know, if they offer you the job at, at Athens while you're there, you know, at least at, at Athens was not – Ohio U was not a host school. Uh, so I was not going to be working for hosts. I'd be working for the university. They heard I was there for an interview. They said, would you just wait until you at least interviewed Western Kentucky University? And I said, sure. Uh, you know, they haven't offered me the job today, first of all. So a week later, I went to WKU and uh, 
And first time, uh, well, I'd been there about three days before, like in 1986, I worked at North Carolina, Charlotte as a color announcer, but I was the minor league baseball and I've been there for the tournament. So I'd been around Bowling Green for just for a couple of days. And that was, you know, 20 years before then. Uh, I'm not, didn't know much about the area, but uh, loved my interview. And they asked me, I said, we understand you interviewed Ohio U like last week, uh, which job would you prefer taking? I said, whichever one offers me first. And they called the next day and offered me the job. So, uh, or maybe it's a couple of days after that, but, uh, that's how all that how all that went down. What is your routine for parent for preparing for like for today's broadcast? Let's just go with the present broadcast. Like, what things right now are you preparing, working on, and basically keeping yourself flexible and open because you know the storylines you think you're going to use they're going to change. Well, I transfer tons of stuff from the game notes that the sports information director gives you to just sort of a, you know, stuff that I've learned that I'm comfortable with in terms of my format. You know, it's a spotting sheet sort of for each team and keep running score and things like that. So I'll just jot down notes. You know, a lot of notes that are in the in the, in the notes and a lot of notes that aren't. You know, I like to look at trends. I look at the box scores and see that a player has, you know, the last eight games, maybe he's only four for 25 on threes. And, you know, quite often stuff like that isn't in the notes. So, you know, I'll I'll parouse that. Um, You know, you learn names and numbers. It's not as difficult in basketball as as in football. You memorize names and numbers, especially with guys you've never seen play before. And after that, it's easier because you don't want to look at the number all the time. You know what they look like. And, um, you know, you talk to the coach and uh, go to shoot around. Supposedly, I, I, I was errant. I looked at the uh, – I would have been benched today if I was a player because I looked at our itinerary wrong and missed the bus to go to shoot around. So uh, I didn't make shoot around today. But I always try to go to shoot around. And, and uh, you know, me and my color guy will talk a little bit. And, uh, you know, that's – you know, I'm go over the log, even though it has nothing to do with – the play-by-play of the game itself. There's a lot of live commercials we have to get in and features and things like that. So I put that all together as well. And uh, it's pretty well lit for basketball. Football is a week-long deal. And in basketball, I mean, I'll start, let's see, what is today, Thursday? Yeah, I, on Monday we had a coaching show. So I really started preparing for Charlotte and Old Dominion that we play in our next game. A little bit of that prep work on um, Monday morning. And I wanted to be prepared for the Monday coaches show. So, you know, our coach would throw me a curveball. And then um, probably didn't do any prep work on Tuesday. I did some yesterday, wrapped it up this morning early uh, for the game. And uh, so I'll be ready for tonight. Football is a different story. I I do something every day. I've got my own routine. I, I take Tuesdays off. But every other day, I'm doing some kind of prep work for the football broadcast for a Saturday. So I'm prepping Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Um, I, I, don't, I, take, I don't usually do anything on Sunday. So five days a week out of seven, I'm involved in some kind of a prep prep work for football. And, you know, it's a little bit more of a, uh, a timely, you know, a timely uh, project for football. It's, you know, it's more, it's a longer broadcast, more players to memorize. You're not as close to the action. Uh, you have more time to tell stories. So you do do a lot more prep work and basketball, you know, half the stuff I, that I try to get and I can't because there's not enough time, but it's a different, it's different for football and, ba- and baseball, that prep work that you use, uh, you know, most of the time you can use uh, a large portion of it. It's timely and uh, to use it during the broadcast. Is it true? Cause I've read a lot of people say this in interviews about the winter meetings, it's like they shoot you in like cattle. How accurate is that when you were in the winter meetings? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I first started going to winter meetings. I went to the first winter meetings were in Nashville. It was, you know, reasonably close drive from Marshall. So I drove down there, you know, got a cheap hotel, 
didn't know anything about anything. This is before I even got a job monitoring baseball. It's before I had an internship. I just felt like if I wanted to get into broadcasting, maybe this is the way to do it, is to get an internship with a monitoring baseball team in the summers. So I drove down there. I didn't know one person in monitoring baseball, not a single person. I had never been to Nashville in my life. Once again, before the internet, I knew how to get to Nashville. I had a roadmap. That's it. You know, found out where you know, it was being held in Nashville, walked in there, uh, you know, paid my fee, whatever it was. I forget what it was. And then sort of found out that at a certain time each morning, there's this one room that you had to report to. And all the general managers of all the my baseball teams across America would come in there and pitch their job opportunity. And my first year there, I was there two days, went to, went to that thing twice, took my resume down, had a couple cassette tapes of some, I don't think I included the Little League baseball games I did back in my hometown, but I had a couple college, you know, play-by-play tapes. Not one, and I didn't know any better at the time, not one GM even talked about broadcasting. Nothing. It was about, you know, $500 a month, you know, we'll... We'll give you food coupons to help you eat, learn how to sell, that kind of stuff, which I didn't want to do. So I didn't get anything out of it, except maybe got the fright out of my system that first year. Uh, but they pack you in like how you show up. And most of the people like me would leave that meeting grumbling like, oh, my God, how could you even afford to live on a salary like that? And that was many, many. I mean, that was in the early 80s. Um, but, yeah, they, they it was it was a cattle call. Yeah. Um, but I, fortunately I didn't have to go back, um, the next couple of years cause I had those internships. I think I secured them over, I secured the inter- internship over the phone. I didn't have to go to the winter meetings, but I probably went to three or four other ones. And like I said, the one winter meeting when I was, I, you know, it was fortunate to get the opportunity in Florida. I interviewed there at the winter meetings. So. When you're working with a new broadcast partner, new sideline person, you know you're who your on-site engineer is and whoever's back at Learfield Network Control. How much of a juggling act is it to make sure that you can make sure everybody gets what they need to get to make sure that the broadcast is going to go smooth or as close to smooth as possible? Well, I'm fortunate here at uh, Western Kentucky University because I've, you know, Hal is my has been our sidekick for 15 years now. Well, he's been, you know, the color guy for much longer than that. But we've worked together for 15 years, and I remember the first. He probably doesn't remember this because his memory's not as good as mine. He's sat next to he's sat next to me now in the room. But when I like one of the first couple of days when I got to WKU. Uh, they introduced me in some kind of our, our new staff, you know, the, the new host communication staff for some kind of a board meeting or athletic department meeting or whatever. And they wanted all of us to go up there and introduce ourselves. And I remember this big, tall dude got up and came over to me and said, hi, I'm Hal Schmidt. Welcome to Bowling Green, Kentucky, Western Kentucky University. I'm your color commentator. And we've been, uh, well, I'll call Hal one of my very best friends. I don't know if he would say the same thing. But, uh, you know, 15 years, and I don't know we've ever had a crossword between us, and we travel all the time together. This time of year, he spends more time with me, uh, more quality time with me than even his wife. Uh, so, um, so you know, we know each other, and uh, we know each, what each other does in the broadcast, and we, you know, you don't step over anyone anymore because, you, you know, the pauses, and it just, it's a perfect it's a perfect broadcasting marriage and football was the same way with a, a, our football announcer. We were together for 14 years until he retired this past year. Um, and you just get to know each other personally. You become great friends. Leo's one of my very best friends as well, our football guy. And it just makes it so much easier to be friends as well as uh, broadcasting partners. And um, it just made it so enjoyable uh, to not have someone different all the time and having to learn, you know, what they like and what they do well and what you do well and what you don't do well. And 
you just learn to help each other out and be there for each other. Um, and uh, it, it makes it really easy. So what's it like having Terry Obi in the booth doing color and giving fans more insight with like what the play is and what it's supposed to do? Terry is very different uh, in that regard. You know, I, I don't think there are too many people uh, that listen to broadcast, uh, not too many people who listen to radio broadcast more than you or I, Luther. I mean, it's, I just love it. I don't, I mean, I much prefer so to I. listen to the game. Than so, you know, you and I, and I've got a friend down in West Texas who is uh, like yourself, does have some challenges, visual challenges. So they have learned to follow sports on the radio, uh, you know, satellite radio, internet. And that is how they keep up with sports all the time. And, and, you know, fortunately I don't have the, you know, the visual issues so I can watch it, but I still prefer to listen. And, um, you know, I, I lost my train of thought. What were we talking about, Luther? We were talking about like your new color analyst who's worked with you for the last, what, two years oh, now, Terry, sure. like on yeah. breaking, like, Telling you what yeah. the play is supposed to be and how right. it's supposed to work. I don't know if you've had a color analyst like that or not. No, never have. And, and Terry, and you know, like, and I, I think the point I was trying to get to is I listen to games all the time. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's I mean, anyone who has been on the on um, satellite network, any school, I, I've heard them all. And Terry is different. He he talks more like a coach and a player, mm-hmm. and he does get really technical sometimes, which a lot of people don't like. A lot of people love it. A lot of people don't like it, but that's how he sees the game, and I do think he's entertaining, and I think if you just listen to maybe what he says rather than sometimes how he says it, like his ability to when the other team or when we line up, he'll say, okay, they're in cover two. And sometimes I got to explain to everyone once again what cover two means. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. But you'll say, oh my God, they're exposed right here. And I'll be darned. Very next play, bam, 45 yard <laughs> pass play to where he saw the weakness. And it could be our weakness or their weakness. So those kind of things, you know, you don't, you don't hear a lot of that. Um, Westwood one has a few of them to do the NFL games, yep. but he's more X's and O's than anyone I've ever worked with and 99% of the people that I've heard. And I mean, that's what he wants to do. We've talked about it. He's going to go with that because that's who he is. Um, he wants to be different. Um, you know, and I, and you know, and I, it, it's, it's a, it's an adjustment for listeners. And like I said, some like it a lot. Some it's so different. They don't really like it. Some are right in the middle, but it was his first year doing it. He replaced a gentleman who was in a Hall of Fame at WKU and had a had a completely different approach. He wasn't X's and O's hardly at all, uh, but he was awesome with the way he described it. So the approaches are so drastically different. It had to be. I know it was a big adjustment, and uh, and there's some things that we're going to tweak this coming year uh, to scale back a little bit, but. Uh, you know, he is who he is, and I think he's exceptional at that kind of stuff. And he's had a couple of major schools, one being his alma mater, who has reached out to him and wanted to know if he would ever be interested to work for them because this is a different style that they would like to have other than what they do have. So when you do with your basketball announcer, color analyst, how do you feel like, since you guys have worked for a while, are there still some challenges when he does his analysis and the ball, you know, is in play? It's like, oh, like if they're playing a two-three zone, he's like, look, foul line, go gaps. Because I'm like, when my person who's helped me with the game says, oh, they're in a two-three zone, and I'm thinking, okay, I always hear from the color analyst to break down a zone, you got to go foul lines and gaps, which means you get to the foul line and drive to the seams of the zone and get to the baseline to the basket. So how do you figure out where you slide back in with the play-by-play after your analyst for basketball explains what 
the opponent is in and what you like for WKU is trying to expose in that. Well, how and I've worked together you know, for so many games and so many years. You know, maybe when we first started, we'd have to look at each, each other to see, you know, when he's going to stop talking, when I'm going to start. But I don't recall even really looking at each other anymore. Um, I, I think we know, based upon how many games we've done together, when Howe is in his descriptions, I pretty well know when he in, when he's going to end. Um because you just know his style, and I think probably he, he knows mine as well. So it's become very easy to not jump over each other, and we know our roles. And, um, you know, sometimes I probably, um, you know, maybe um, steal a little bit of his role from time to time. Um, but not too – I don't think I'm too bad about that. I think I, I think he give him a lot of space. We used to do simulcast together, you know, the old – that's the old style where, you know, um, Hal and I would do the radio and TV broadcast in time. So people watching and listening, it was our broadcast. So that was a little different. And Hal got to talk more in those games because you had to scale back your radio play-by-play style a little bit. Not entirely, but a little bit. So you don't talk people's ears off when they're watching it on television. And, you know, the color person he talks a great deal more on TV than he does on radio. So in those days, I know we probably had some adjustments to make when we first started with that arrangement where Hal would talk more and I would talk less and describe the play-by-play a little less than I would do on the straight radio broadcast that we do now. How tough was that doing a simulcast? Because I heard hear from a lot of radio people, it's a tough transition because you're doing you've done radio for so long but when you're doing radio and tv then you have to figure out how you're gonna you know scale back what you've done for your whole life and set up your color analyst to do more of you know his job yeah i think that you know for me uh to me that was the toughest part was i try to picture in my mind okay I'm, you're really descriptive in in on the radio broadcast I mean, how much do you scale back for TV? And you, know, we—I mean, I don't—I don't. Of course, maybe people are not going to come up to you and tell you, "Man, I hate you and Hal on the simulcast. I don't like that style. Of, I just don't like that style. It's too much talking." You know, of all the years we did it, I don't know. We probably did it six, seven years, maybe. I don't know, maybe longer. I didn't have one person ever come to me and say, "You know, I don't like that because when I'm watching on television, you're talking too much." Uh, I'm sure many people felt that, but no one ever said that to my face. So, uh, but you know, that was the one, that was the one thing and I remember during games thinking, okay, I got to lay off a little bit, scale back just a little bit, but I don't want to also shortchange the radio, you know, the radio listener. So that, that was the challenge. And I, I would think about that every game during the broadcast for sure. Um, I mean, our biggest challenge, quite frankly, is, you know, uh, we'd show up and we do our TV stand up before the radio broadcast would start. And sometimes, for whatever reasons, we would get down to where we got to be over on this radio broadcast like in three minutes, okay? We got to be over there, and we're still standing on the court because our TV stand-up's not done yet, all right? So we got to get this done. I recall you know, a few of those uh, uh, you know, getting right down to the very end where we could not, we could not possibly spend any more time on the TV simulcast or the TV stand up, we've got to go over and start the radio broadcast. So that, that happened a lot. So I guess you're about to head over to the arena and get ready for your pregame chat with Coach Stansberry. Oh, speaking of that, what's it like to work with the coaches you have now with Coach um, <clears throat> Helton and Coach Stansberry? Well, and you know, basketball coach Stansberry is who we work work with. Yes. Uh, Rick's, Rick's great. I mean, um, you don't usually need a few more than a few questions to fill up the time allotted for a pregame interview. Um, you know, you know, of all the coaches I've worked with here, and there have been quite a few of them, mm-hmm. uh, we're sort of the uh, – in football, anytime we have any success at all, our, our coach gets lured away. We've had a few basketball coaches that way. And, um, I can only think of one head coach since I've been here that I didn't like being around or, or talking to. So I've been very fortunate in that regard. They've all been very nice people. And 
Uh, I think the uh, value, maybe, you know, the, 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 the services that you and your you know, the color guy work, that we work together that do, and uh, they treat us uh, as really the part of the, 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 the program and the teams, you know, like their family. So uh, they've, they've been great. No, no complaints whatsoever. I've always wondered this with Coach Gander. It seems like before a game or even after a game, he is literally has no voice left, especially when you're listening to him oh, on the post-game show. <laughs> right. Rick, you know, I don't know if he is, if his voice has always been that way or not. Um, earlier in the year, he was nearly inaudible <laughs> on his Monday Night Coaches show. Oh, wow. that, that's usually earlier in the season because he, he's not a coach who yells a lot during games. However, he yells a lot during practices prior mm-hmm. to the season starting. Right. And he is always hoarse when the regular season arrives. Uh, he's more of a yeller, you know, preparing his team for the season than he is during the season. So, yes, his voice is trashed out, uh, you know, in November. And, you know, go have a cold once in a while. And, and uh, you know, but like, you know, in some games, you're right. At the end of the game, uh, he does not have the strength in that voice as he does early. And we had a talk about this a while ago. And, you know, uh, he's not one to go to the doctor. He grew up on a farm in Western Kentucky. And, you know, he's not used to going to doctors. But there was a, and believe it hasn't happened very often, but I, I relayed a, a true story about Bill Sharman who was a Hall of Fame player for the Celtics and was a coach in the ABA and won a title with the Utah Stars. And then he went to the Los Angeles Lakers. And before the Bulls broke the record, they had the best record in the history of basketball and had the 33-game winning streak, which still stands. That was a 71-72 season. Well, at the end of that year, he started losing his voice. And it progressively got worse. He didn't really do anything about it. It got to a point in time later in his career or he would need one of those, uh, like it, like the cheerleaders when they yell through them. You know what? Are, what is it called? You know, the, megaphone. The, megaphone. Megaphone. Yeah, he got a small phone in practice so he could communicate with his team, and it got to a point where his vocal cords were so damaged they could not be repaired. This now, this is in the seventies. I'm sure there's advancements now. He had to retire because he could not communicate. Mm. And sometimes Rick worries me because his voice is so damaged, his vocal cords at different periods of time that I always worry about that. But he bounces back and, you know, his his voice is in pretty good shape here this week. But I I do worry about that at some point in time. Oh, sure. I mean, if you're if you're a coach or, you know, like you or I as a broadcaster, the one thing we always get concerned about is at what point when is our voice going to give out? Because and you know singers, you know, we've we've yeah. heard of many singers having vocal cord surgery, especially yes. the, the music that I listen to. The you know the hard rock, heavy metal guys who scream a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have a lot of those guys have had vocal cord surgery. So you know, it's not that it, it, you know it wouldn't happen to a coach. It could very well happen to a coach. Sure. I mean, <laughs> I want to thank you for your time, even though it took us a little bit to get things communicated and corrected, but I do want to thank you for the interview time. Well, pleasure to be with you, Luther. And I do admire, um, you know, um, you you have a a brilliant mind and a great voice and a passion for sports. And you're trying to accomplish something quite frankly, that no one has done before being visually challenged and trying to become a play-by-play announcer uh, you know, in football and basketball. I know it was done in, in minor league baseball, uh, but I mean, I, I admire what you're what you're going to do, and I know you're going to reach your goal, and all this hard work and effort is going to pay off. And, uh, you know, you're an example to so many other people, whether they have, um, you know, any things they have to deal with or not uh, to pursue a goal and get through challenges. We've all had challenges. Believe me, I've had some. I've hit myself. To get through it with help from other people and learn things on your own, and I admire uh, where where you've reached, and I look forward to following uh, your future. Mr. Lee, thanks for the kind words.
I look forward to staying in touch with you and hope we can do another interview at some point down the road when your schedule allows. My thanks to the voice of the Western Kentucky University Athletics Radio Voice, Randy Lee, for being my guest on this week's edition of the Blind Broadcaster Podcast, the proud entity of the Luther King Broadcast Network. If you'd like to reach me with suggestions, questions, concerns, or ideas on how to improve the podcast, you may do so by emailing me at luther.king.tsb at gmail.com, find me on Twitter at king underscore tsb, and on Instagram at lking.cardinalsfan85, and you can look up more information about the network by going on the website, lutherkingbroadcastnetwork.com, the Facebook page is the Blind Broadcaster Podcast Facebook page, and and the Luther King Broadcast Network Facebook page. Please rate, subscribe, and review on your favorite podcast app or platform directory. Join us again next time for another exciting edition of the Blind Broadcaster Podcast, a proud entity of the Luther King Broadcast Network. You've been listening to the Blind Broadcaster Podcast presented by the Luther King Broadcast Network. Each episode, Luther King sits down with fellow broadcasters to get their insight into their passion for broadcasting and discuss their career journey. Blind from birth, Luther King never let that stop him from attaining his goal of becoming a blind broadcaster. To find out more about the Blind Broadcaster Podcast presented by the Luther King Broadcast Network, search the Blind Broadcaster Podcast or Luther King Broadcast Network on social media or visit Luther King Broadcast network.com.